Hey, Madison here. Just before you start, this show looks at domestic abuse head on. This particular episode zooms in on what men weaponize against their partners in abusive relationships, be it their faith, their community, or anything else that holds significance in their partner's lives. It also documents Roy's abuse explicitly, and from there, zooms out to reveal snippets of the stories of other women, some who were tragically murdered. Because of this, it is quite heavy at times. So be gentle with yourself, listen with care, and know that support is readily available for any unpleasant feelings that might pop up. Check out our website for a list of people you can speak to if the going gets tough. There's a tired fact that lives in all abusive relationships, and it's one that hurts to think about. Domestic abuse differs from other forms of violence, and this has nothing to do with the echo of an insult or a hot sting of a slap. Domestic abuse can often flourish without any physical violence. In fact, it lives in the soft threats, the feeling of being controlled and monitored, the way your agency falls and leaks out with every curse, with every sideward glance. What sets domestic abuse apart from other forms of violence is the interpersonal dimension of it. The fact that it admits that what was once postured as commitment has evolved into something monstrous, something ugly, something of an antithesis of what it's promised. The origin story of many abusive relationships is as unique as any love story. Sometimes abuse grows in the cavities of an intense love affair between two teenagers as they fumble around nervously in quiet locker rooms (laughs) or in the backs of cars. Sometimes abuse grows in more orchestrated and deliberate interactions. An arranged marriage, the looming tension between a mother and her son or a daughter and her father, as they occupy the same weird space. Sometimes abuse snakes its way through to the heart of any matter by way of emojis, of cute checks, of matching with a handsome person on a dating app, only to have agitation grow and swell where it promised it wouldn't, for flirtatious banter to turn into a foreboding threat. Abuse grows where love once could have. Interpersonal violence is a double-edged sword. And this, this tense and dangerous phenomenon makes any sort of court proceedings incredibly hard. A whipped thing, the end, or so it seems, of a terrible loveless promise. Not only did something die here, something died where it was meant to thrive. And here, in this courtroom, a space littered with the echo of dry legalities, of shoes marching on tiles to rooms where tears are dabbed and forgotten, of apprehended sentencing and the silence that follows, is where it is laid to rest. You're listening to Tenda, a Broadway podcast that asks the question, what happens when a woman leaves? In this season and last, we offer an insight into the intricacies of survivors after. A deeply personal exploration. But for some of us, 
that journey finds itself embedded into the public psyche, into the rights and reputations of a state apparently designed to seek justice, to punish, to teach, to evolve accordingly. When my abuser decided to set me alight, he lit the fuse of his own after at the same time. He invited the outside world into a domestic horror that he had let run riot, and he was charged for it. When you separate yourself from the grips of abuse, you're forced to see your abuser in a stark and unforgiving light. You're forced to see his violence, divorced from each and every tired excuse he could muster. The domestic script is turned on its head when it's seen, poked and looked at through bureaucratic system. But this wasn't always the case, and very often still isn't, in a distorted system pasted together to achieve justice. Once upon a time, in the recent future, even as recently as 2012, the abuser's tired remarks surrounding why he did what he did were taken seriously in the court of law. When Chamanjut Singh was sentenced in the New South Wales Supreme Court to six years jail after murdering his wife, his sentence was manslaughter by provocation. Not murder. Despite slitting his wife's throat in cold blood, his argument was he was under the impression that his wife had been unfaithful and was intending to leave the marriage. In many ways, the law, when it tries to understand the perpetrator, to tap into his mindset at the time of the crime legitimizes lethal domestic violence. The empathy it often reserves for those who asserts control and dominance, so much so that a life was lost, only works to reaffirm the infrastructure of abuse in the first place. Namely, that she was his, and he had to do whatever he could to keep it that way. But she wasn't. She never was. When my abuser watched the flames curl and swallow me as I held our child, my child, I would have no court of law argued that it was something induced, something provoked. The smoke was there right from the beginning. It was January 1999 when the trial went ahead and the heat was stifling. There were cameras movement, a kind of a buzz in the air that I couldn't quite understand. And then there was him, something more than a man now, but the sweaty and awful image of my undoing. There was something perverse about having the person who tried to kill you as you wear the wounds that demonstrate his attempt, argue innocence, and be afforded that right. But what made the court proceedings even more convoluted had little to do with the actions themselves, but with how my abuser used his faith, my faith, to confuse, derail, and undermine my pursuit of justice, and how, in a court of law largely unfamiliar with multicultural Australia, he was believed. He tried to stand before me, before the court system of Australia, as an image of Muslim goodness, surrounded by his family, the pillars of his faith. An abuser often assumes a role larger and more precarious than an actual person. Extensions of their abuse can be found in the lateral violence that comes from their network, their position in the world, 
their capacity to isolate you from others. You know, I don't want to sound too much like a chauvinist, but when I come home and dinner's not ready, I go through the roof. Now, Kosa King, as Welonke Siknao, says he doesn't believe South Africa is ready for a woman president. Earlier today, during the motion relating to violence against women, Senator Lame held yelled an offensive and sexist slur at me across the chamber. When you have the leader of the largest faith group in the world, with 1.2 billion Catholics, who has referred to women as ribs, not once, but twice, then you really have a problem. Part of the reason I keep coming back to the system we're in is the man will always be able to weaponize his culture and faith against his partner in a system that allows him to. You just heard from Hala Abdul-Nur, a family violence practitioner who specializes in her work with male perpetrators and culturally diverse communities. In his own community, which is isolated and but also it has not addressed gender equality let's say that conversation around that is different in different spaces but in the broader context of being in Australia men can weaponize anything against women because well our own politicians are doing it it wasn't just him I was dealing with anymore it was the image of respectability and religion he had formulated in an attempt to distract and seduce the court It was his family, the columns of his after bolstering him up, his relative. Look, whether it's justice, whether it's a police response or somewhere else, the minute somebody's from overseas, different faith background, different skin colour, we start attaching everything going on in in their lives to that. And I, I will be in a conversation with someone who's far more of an expert than I am on gendered issues and understanding the gender dynamics and understanding power and control and coercive control. And we could go into so deep into talking about those things and I'm blown away by their level of knowledge of it. Then the minute we talk about someone from overseas, oh, but that's their culture, that's their faith. It's everybody's culture and faith. Why did you just throw all of your knowledge out the window because somebody's of a different background and skin colour? In an attempt to divert the court away from the issue at hand, He even tried to argue that the trial couldn't possibly go ahead due to it being held in the month of Ramadan, the holiest month of the Muslim calendar, where adults fast from dawn to dusk for approximately 30 days. That for me is inherent racism. It it just is. I'm going to name it. It's so inherent to all of us. We have to work really hard to unpack that. So that's going to follow you into a courtroom. There might be one worker in that courtroom that gets it, that's done some work, decolonize their brain, deracialize their thoughts. Doesn't matter because the whole system hasn't done that. He was hungry, hungry and holy and unable to stand trial. But I too had been hungry for a long time, hungry for judicial proceedings that would see him disappear from my life, that would see my children be able to flourish without fear to live my life honestly and safely as a Muslim woman in this country. Twelve years. That's what they explained to me that he got. Twelve years. Twelve years as in nearly double the length it takes for each and every cell in the body to regenerate. 12 years, as in a small lifetime, as in how long it takes for a baby to become a child, for a child to become a teenager, for life and growth to ensue. 
12 years he got. But I had been sentenced long before him. Sentenced from the first moment he locked eyes with me. His 14-year-old bride, as he threw my doll I had packed in my suitcase from Afghanistan to Pakistan to Australia into a metal bin. My toy, a symbol of comfort and safety. In much the same way, I too got 12 years. 12 years to tend to my children, to occupy crowded pubs and sweaty dance floors alongside eager patrons, to breed, to rest, to fast if I so wish. A small and petrifying marriage summarized into one dismal core charge that confirmed without question that this man wanted to hurt me. 12 years, or so I thought. What does it mean to earn your way out of harm you've carried out? To stir awake in a cell for the last time, having gained the option to leave, to reintegrate oneself into the world again. As my abuser counted down the days until he was able to step foot into the port, he once knew I was kept in the dark, forever detained by sentence with no expiration date, anxiously anticipating his release. It was a Friday, and he was being released. It was a Friday, and I looked fitfully towards my children as I processed the letter. A foldable courtesy in a tired envelope notifying me that the man who tried to kill me once, the man who may again, was being released. In a panic, I rang the corrections body and pleaded with them. First, that they were making a mistake, and second, that if they weren't, where was he working, staying, occupying? I need to know, I uttered, desperate. That's an invasion of his privacy, Roya. I can't tell you that. When survivors are met with a system that assumes or at least attempts to ensure some kind of balance between perpetrator and a victim, a few concrete facets of the identities of the survivors are taken for granted. An invasion of his privacy, sure, I can understand that, on paper, but I can't seem to understand my own invasions in such simplistic terms. What about the sort of terror that was able to envelop me when it occurred in his privacy, when his privacy was made sacred, protected, his privacy, as in the thing now being preserved as I beg for the right to run, to avoid, to tiptoe around a living, breathing threat of a man. But it wasn't just me now, it wasn't ever. As social worker Dr. Fiona Buchanan writes, far too often women are perceived as passive victims of domestic abuse, who while enduring unconscionable abuse are unable to protect their own children. I had been sheltering my children from the horrors that developed in the home we shared with my ex-husband. It was hardwired into me. Conflict was avoided at all costs. Abuse was preempted, aggression was subdued, with timely dinners and modest conversations about the weather, his work, my clothing, the way the kids played. My children's well-being was safeguarded. I was a mother, after all. It was my job. 
One of the greatest privileges I've had is sit through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of men's behavior change groups. When you meet that many men that use different forms of violence towards their partners and children and sometimes other people from every kind of background and you hear them say the exact same thing, that is no doubt in my mind that gender has a massive role in this and that the way men are raised and socialized and indoctrinated about their sense of entitlement, privilege, their role in society, um, regardless of the religion, the faith, the ethnicity or cultural background, violence towards women is prevalent across all communities. And we live in a world where we normalize violence, where we accept it if it's being perpetrated towards the people we think is okay to perpetrate against. Indigenous people, women, children, people with disability, LGBTI, particularly trans, like there are certain cohorts that we go, oh, well, they experience violence. That's what happens because they always have. I'd like to take you back for a moment to a December six years prior, a balmy Perth afternoon. I'd like to take you back to the moment everything changed, the moment my after began. I like to remind you of the time an orange blaze curled its seeding flames around my body, the way I watched from some place else, somehow as I stood before the man who promised to love me as he set me alight. I want to take you back because it wasn't just us, and perhaps it never was, as I found myself swaddled by the fire that would eventually ignite his sentence, our separation, the prospect of a difficult but necessarily future away from him. I looked down to find my daughter in my arms, right then and there. My sweet, tenuous child being held by her mother as she found herself enveloped in flames. Completely ablaze, but determined to protect her. They were always there, my children, and I was too. And as they evolved and changed, figuring out their own extraordinary afters, I wasn't going to let anyone step in their way, especially not the system designed to protect them. I would stop at nothing. I was my own fiery inferno, my own blaze. I was their mother. I want to thank Hala Abdul-Nur for her generous contributions to this episode and for the work she does in advocating for an Australia free from violence. This season is supported by the Victorian government through Creative Victoria and UNESCO Melbourne City of Literature and is kindly sponsored by the Victorian Women's Trust, an advocate for violence prevention, fair wages for equal work and equal representation of women, men and gender diverse people in the decision-making process that shapes our lives. You're listening to Tinder, a Broadway production about what happens once women leave abusive relationships. This season is created by Madison Griffith, Bit Atkinson, Quinton and me, Roya Atmar. Until next time. Broadway. 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 Broadway.